Good evening and welcome to the National Capital Bible Church here on New Year's Eve, uh, working uh, diligently with our electronics here, but I think we're ready to go. Um, let's begin this evening, <clears throat> first of all, by taking a few seconds for spiritual preparation. Our spiritual preparation, of course, always begins with a few seconds of silent, private prayer. We do this by simply remembering that we need to be, as we say, in fellowship. We need to be filled with God the Holy Spirit in order for us to completely understand and benefit from the spiritual nourishment which we will receive tonight. So, 1 John 1, 9 tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's take just a few seconds of privacy, closing your eyes, bowing your heads, and then I'll open this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we have this opportunity tonight to worship you, but also to reflect upon our nation and the significance of the military as it has provided freedom in this nation. We pray as we worship you tonight that we will uh, truly have the proper uh, introspection and absorption of the Word of God that will allow us to honor you in our worship. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It captures the concept that we understand um, as we conduct our Lord's table this evening. Please follow along as I read. Each year, the National Capital Bible Church holds a New Year's Eve service to focus our thoughts on what is most important in the coming year, learning about our Lord Jesus Christ and his word and serving him. We begin the service with the Lord's table or communion, remembering our Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, the ultimate sacrifice he made on our behalf. Christ died as a substitute for all mankind so that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In this way, Jesus Christ provided our spiritual freedom, freedom from the penalty and the power of sin, and freedom to learn his word and serve him. In this special New Year's Eve service, the communion elements are served to the church by those wearing the uniforms of the United States military. With their service and sacrifice, past and present, the United States military has purchased the peace and tranquility that we enjoy in this nation. The uniforms of the United States military are a symbol of our national freedom, freedom from tyranny and oppression, and freedom to bring in this new year, worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know that ultimately, 
national freedom comes from our Lord. As a matter of fact, in Daniel, Daniel 2.21, it says that God removes kings and he raises up kings. But God has authorized nations to establish and and to protect their country with the sword. And we read that in Romans 13.4. So as we recognize our spiritual freedom this evening with another word for it is the Eucharist, meaning thanksgiving, we also recognize our national freedom with personnel in uniform serving the elements. And the elements tonight, as always, are bread and the cup. The bread really, for the most part, are small wafers. And the cup is grape juice. But the bread represents our Lord's sinless perfection, which he maintained during his incarnation, or as more easily to understand, during his ministry here on earth. He was tempted in all areas as we are, but he did not succumb to any of those temptations. Why? In so doing, he was able, or we would say he was qualified, to be our sacrifice, going to the cross without blemish. Jesus, therefore, was qualified to atone for the sins of the world. And the piece of bread represents his sinless perfection. The cup, of course, represents our Lord's complete sacrifice on the cross. And when I use the word complete, I mean his finished sacrifice on the cross. The beverage in the cup is red, which illustrates blood, which in turn symbolizes death. Our Lord died both spiritually and physically on the cross. And it was his spiritual death that actually paid for the sins of the entire world. Our sins. Our sins individually. Each person here this evening has had your sins nailed to the cross. Nailed to the cross so that no longer is sin a barrier to salvation. Jesus' spiritual death on the cross made it possible for us to have eternal life simply by believing in his finished work on the cross. His sacrifice on that day on Calvary in A.D. 33 paid for the sins of the entire world, past, present, and even those in the future. Our Lord instituted what we call also the Lord's Table, or the Lord's Supper, we'll call it the Lord's Table for now, on the night before he was crucified. Why did he do this? He did this so that we would never forget what he has done for us. We exhibit our obedience by taking the bread and the cup together. I'd like to ask those who are going to assist me, who are in their uniforms tonight, with the communion service to please stand. Thank you, Helen. Nancy? <clears throat> Open your Bibles this evening to Romans 
Romans 8.28. Most of us know Romans 8.28. We've heard it many times. Been taught several times. We're turning to it because the subject of our message tonight, subject of our New Year's Eve service, is a man whose name is Louis Zamperini. Many of you know him from uh, a more uh, a recent book <clears throat> written by Laura Hillenbrand, known as Unbroken. This was one of his favorite verses, Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, and. Uh, there's probably fewer, uh, better examples than Louis, or Louis, or as he called himself, Lou. So, this evening, for our New Year's Eve service, we are going to take, actually it's only a brief look at uh, Louis, uh, his life, and lessons. The book that was recently written is known as Unbroken, and I think many of you may even have that book. Uh, many of you have probably read the book. It's, uh, it's an excellent book. Uh, Lauren Hillenbrand wrote the book, uh, dividing his life into five, we could say, sections or parts. And each one of those parts then, of course, is divided into chapters. The reason it's called Unbroken is because, as she says through the book, by illustrating through his life, that he had many challenges, uh, many assaults, we might even say, on his life. But throughout his life, he remained unbroken. Now, depending upon how you approached that with Louis, he would probably agree or disagree. His agreement would be that, yes, humanly speaking, no other human actually broke me. But he would also say that the Lord Jesus Christ or the message of the Lord Jesus Christ did. And so tonight, I'm going to spend, uh, as I said, the rest of our time talking about Louis, Louis Zamperini, and his life. Louis' life begins in Southern California. And he grew up with an older brother, two years older than he was, and two younger sisters. He has great respect for his father and mother, but the problem is he just couldn't bring himself to obey them. And throughout um, Unbroken, but even more so in an autobiography that he wrote. He wrote a book that he calls, that he entitled, Devil at My Heels. And for those of you who enjoyed Unbroken, Devil at My Heels is even better. And the reason that it surpasses Unbroken is because Unbroken is written by an unbeliever. Devil at My Heels is written by a believer who 
unabashedly refers to his conversion. Uh, certainly in the last three or four chapters, but even periodically throughout. And I believe that it really does take another believer to understand the true impact of conversion in anyone's life, and certainly in Louis Zamperini's life, because it had a tremendous impact on his life. But as a child... He, at best, could be called a juvenile delinquent, uh, a literal hooligan that really brought terror to his neighborhood, to the school, and really even to his family at various times. Uh, as you read uh, both books, Unbroken and Devil at My Heels, you have this sense that if there was a rule, Louis was out to break it. And while he may not say, I was doing it intentionally, as most of us probably would not say as children, it occurred. And he was constantly uh, running from the law, telling lies, hiding, and running away from just about anything or anywhere he was supposed to be. So he stole, he fought, and generally caused trouble wherever he was. He was defiant, and he certainly was disobedient. Finally, his brother, his older brother, whose name was Pete, two years older than he was, who was possibly a model child growing up. So that always helps to uh, highlight the difference. You know, it's a foil against uh, Louis. Finally, his older brother whom Louis really adored and respected. His older brother challenged him to make something of his life instead of continuing to be uh, a complete waste. And for some reason, this caught Louis' attention. His older brother was a local track star. Um, he was also the president of the student council in high school. Uh, Louis was constantly in fights with everybody, and uh, so he was certainly well-known but not popular. His brother, on the other hand, was just the opposite. And so his brother challenged him to running, <clears throat> saying that because he was already running anyhow, he was running from people after he stole things, he was running from the law, if the... Uh, uh, town constable in Torrance, Southern California, was going north, he was going south. And uh, it's, a, it's really a remarkable story. It's captured, I think, very well and unbroken, and certainly also devil at my heels. And so he starts not simply with the devil later in his life being at his heels, but simply throughout his life. And he starts, as I say, as a young child. Anyhow, his brother challenged him to running. And he started running uh, officially in high school, actually before high school. But when he got to high school, he was a star as a freshman. As a matter of fact, he was able to challenge and defeat the older runners. He ran so well that he set records in California. He even set records 
in the NCAA, well, uh, at, the, at the high school level uh, throughout the United States. After he graduated, he decided that he was going to the Olympics. He wanted to compete in the Olympic Games. The next Olympic Games were going to be in Germany in 1936. And so uh, he wanted to compete as a miler. Well, um, he was, uh, he was um, exceptionally skilled, but in the, uh, the heat, the last run, uh, he was, he actually tied, I think, the, uh, the runner that would eventually represent the United States in the mile. And so he entered running the 1500 meter, 1500 meters. And um, it really was quite a time for, for him because um, the books talk about how he uh, put on the uh, Olympic uniform, uh, blue jackets, white slacks, a straw hat. This was 1936, mind you. And they all took a cruise to Europe where they spent, uh, he's probably spent more than a month uh, preparing for the Olympics away from home and then also at the Olympics. And in the Olympics, he uh, did not win, but he placed eighth against the competition of the world. And uh, what is sensational, uh, probably more sensational than him finishing eighth in the Olympics is his last quarter mile he ran in 56 seconds and it just stunned most of the world to think that someone after having run the first part of the 1500 meters could run a quarter mile in 56 seconds which was really pretty phenomenal anyhow while he was there uh, as usual he got into a certain amount of mischief uh, one of them was pulling down uh, one of the nazi flags although he wasn't really pulling it down because he is opposed to the Nazis, because as he would say, didn't know that much about it. But it looked like it would make a great souvenir. And he not only took a flag, but he took several other things uh, along the way uh, to, uh, to be souvenirs. However, he was, he was caught pulling down the flag, and he ended up standing in front of, uh, oh, I can't remember, one of the field marshals. And uh, the field marshal asked him, why in the world would you want to tear down one of our flags through a translator? And he said, because I just wanted to have a souvenir of these great games, which was the right answer. And the, and the uh, general said, go ahead, you may take it. And so he did. Now, that story is told many times uh, differently, told that he pulled it down in the middle of the ceremony and the, it, was, it created quite a stink throughout the world, which really is not quite true. But it still makes a good story. Anyhow, um, Hitler was at the games, and he was always surrounded, of course, by a large entourage. But if you wanted to have a picture of him, you could have a picture taken by someone else. And so uh, Louis went up to one of the German officials, turns out it was Goebbels, and asked him if he would take a picture of Hitler for him. He said, well, yes, I certainly will. He said, what is your name? He said, oh, my name doesn't make any difference because I really didn't place. He said, well, uh, the Fuhrer would like to know your name anyhow. 
when, uh, why don't we take the picture? He said, well, my name's Louis Zamperini. He says, okay, very well. Hitler had remembered him, remembered the 56-second quarter mile. And when he came back, Hitler said, or Goebbels said, Hitler wants to meet you. And he said, well, why would he want to meet me? He said, he remembers your sprint. He thinks you have courage. So he took him over, just shook his hand. They may have ch- exchanged pleasantries, but that was, that was about it. But while he was at the Olympics, he made great friends with Jesse Owens and many other runners that would uh, place him in really um, tremendous company throughout the rest of his life. Well, he comes back and he decides that he is going to train for the next Olympiad, which is going to be in Tokyo, Tokyo in 1940. And he's preparing for uh, this Olympics. Uh, he, He actually injures himself, but he recovers, and he's still hoping to go to the Olympics in Tokyo. But, as most of us know historically, the Tokyo Olympics were never run because Japan invaded Manchuria, invaded other, uh, uh, invaded uh, Korea, invaded other areas, and by 1940, the uh, the world was not going to Tokyo, and Japan was not going to hold the Olympics, and so it was canceled. Well, in 1940, it appeared that the world was going to war. Of course, the war in Europe was on, and uh, Louis Zamperini joined the air uh, the Army Air Corps. As a matter of fact, let me catch up with myself here with several pictures. This is uh, Louis Zamperini in his University of Southern Cal uh, track uniform. Here's another one of him running, uh, and I believe this was the heat where he tied the, uh, uh, the national champion in the, uh, the final heat to go to the Olympics. And, of course, he's on the left here. I don't know if you can't, you may not be able to see that very well, Rick. You may want to, or Scott. Uh, he went to Torrance High School, and so he's still wearing his Torrance jersey. Here he is, running uh, Southern Cal again, and over here is the Olympic shield as he trains for the Olympics. Okay. Um, it was in it was in uh, the summer, actually the spring of 1940, that he decided that he was interested in flying, and it's a wonderful story about how actually he was um, uh, he joined. Um, I think it was um, he began working for McDonnell Douglas. And he really decided he'd like to fly. He qualified for flight school, but flying just uh, did not suit him physically. He would say vertigo, uh, upset stomach. And so uh, he decided not to fly. As a matter of fact, I think he actually washed out. And uh, as it turned out, he ended, up, he ended up going to training to be a bombardier pilot. Uh, to be a bombardier, and he was assigned to B-24s. Um, in the, the uh, 
after Pearl Harbor, I think it was in the spring of, um, of 1942, he received his wings and he was assigned to a squadron. Uh, the squadron to which he was assigned was going to Hawaii. And so, off to Hawaii with his bomber crew, a crew of anywhere from 8 to 10. And it was during this period of time that he continued to run. He was convinced that he would be able to uh, compete in the next Olympics as soon as the war was over, or at least a subsequent Olympics after that. And he was truly one of the fastest uh, mile runners in the world. And while he did not know it, his fame had spread to many other nations, and one of them was Japan. Here we see him, as I said, getting his wings, receiving his wings. Um, here he is later on as a, as a captain. He actually was not promoted to captain until he came back from World War II. Here he is uh, up with his plane, the uh, 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 B-24. Well, many of you who do or don't know the story know that uh, they flew uh, quite a few missions out of Hawaii, uh, bombing the uh, Japanese facilities in Wake Island and then in the Southern Pacific as well, uh, almost being shot down several times. But uh, they always managed to come back. As a matter of fact, one of the, the parts of Louis, the parts of the story of Louis's life, is that he cheated death many times. Um, as a youngster, he was running, competing with uh, another uh, young, another boy in the uh, neighborhood as a child, and the other child was hit by a car, and uh, Louis uh, managed to escape that. He was uh, uh, in trouble many other times. He fallen and landed on his head, actually had a perforated eardrum, which might have kept him out of the service, but didn't. Uh, anyhow, their, their aircraft was uh, called Superman. I was going to get a picture of that and then failed, but the picture, the picture shows um, the pilot uh, looking out of the, uh, the window, and his name was Russell Phillips, which the entire crew just called Phil. Well, their aircraft had been tremendously shot up, and so it was being repaired. And when another aircraft went down, and they needed someone, they needed a crew to fly search and rescue. So uh, they volunteered to do so. But the aircraft that uh, they were to fly was known as a cabbage. And uh, a cabbage, according to Louis, meant it was the aircraft that just made the vegetable runs. Uh, it flew to various places to pick up uh, food, really, to bring back to uh, that local base. And it really wasn't uh, suitable for any other kind of flying. Uh, it passed all of its mechanical tests, but it just didn't fly well. Uh, it flew uh, low in the tail. Well, during this, to make probably a very lengthy story somewhat shorter, during this search and rescue, uh, they lost one of their engines. And uh, that's not too bad because B-24s like B-17s can fly on three without too much difficulty. But this aircraft was going to be a problem. Unfortunately, they lost 
they, that was the number one engine, which is on the left side, on the outboard side. Unfortunately, they also lost the number two engine soon after that. And the aircraft simply couldn't fly that way, and it crashed. Uh, of the eight members, may have been ten, on the, the aircraft, only three survived the crash. They were able to get in their uh, lifeboats, two of them, are automatically are ejected from the aircraft when it hits the water. And it's a marvelous story about how they actually caught the light, or Louis caught the rafts as the current was carrying them, uh, the two rafts away, away from them. And then they got into the rafts. And then for the next 47 days, they endured with almost nothing to eat and very little to drink. The only water that they had after they used up what little water was in the raft uh, in the first probably eight days, they only had rain squalls. Well, um, the uh, the record for being uh, at sea on a raft, as near as anyone knew, was set by Eddie Rickenbacker uh, after, uh, during World War or after World War One, and it was twenty some days. Well, they were at sea. 47 days. And uh, they lost weight. They actually lost one of the crewmen. Uh, McNamara, uh, Francis McNamara, who was with them, died. And uh, But Phil, who's the other one that survived the accident, uh, and he uh, survived the current, the several, uh, or at least one typhoon, uh, sharks, uh, the sun being strafed by a Japanese aircraft, and then finally were picked up by a Japanese patrol boat. From there, they were taken to an island, Kowaljalan, where uh, prisoners were executed. But later, they would, they would learn, because of who he was, they were not executed, neither he nor Phil, and they were taken to Japan to a prisoner of war camp. And then the story of, his, uh, of this part of his life is the story of really cruelty and brutality in uh, the prison camps, uh, particularly for him. But uh, much of the same treatment was meted out to others as well. One-third of those uh, in the camps where Louis had been, and we're referring most of the, mostly to those in Japan, one-third of them died. And so, uh, but... Louis had received special treatment, and you don't realize this or you don't understand why until close to the end of the book, but it was because of who he was. The Japanese truly wanted to break him so that they could use him for propaganda, but he refused to be broken, and they even had one particular prison guard who abused him, and his nickname by the prisoners of war uh, was Bird. He was called the Bird. And he tremendously abused uh, Louis, but he didn't break. Well, when the war was over, he returned home. And he had lost a lot of weight. This is Louis over here on this side. Uh, he had lost a lot of weight. His weight was somewhere in the vicinity of 70 pounds. He said that he had, uh, joined, when he joined the service and even during the early, the, uh, early year of his service, probably weighed around 
between 160 and 170. And so uh, finally he lost somewhere in the vicinity of 100 pounds. And it will take him, even after prisoner of war camp, um, uh, several years to gain all that weight back because he not only lost weight as far as just you know the, what's available to lose as far as fat, but you lose muscle as well. Well, uh, Louis comes back to the United States, and uh, at first he's doing reasonably well, but in the end, uh, the brutal treatment that he had catches up with him, and pretty soon uh, headaches, uh, nightmares, uh, anger, resentment, hatred, self-pity, all of these catch up with him, and a lot of it today is diagnosed as uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome. And uh, at first it wasn't so bad. And as a matter of fact, it was during that period of time that he met his future bride, uh, Cynthia Applewhite, and they married. But he continued to sink further and further in his life. And uh, one of the aids that he used was alcohol. Uh, and as he would describe it, those who turn to alcohol when they have problems think that alcohol is going to solve the problem. But it only solves it temporarily because you can get drunk, you can pass out, but when you wake up and recover your senses, the problem is still there. And not only is the problem still there, but now you have added to your problems and your woes because of alcoholism. And so he was on a dead-end road, and pretty soon he came to that dead end. Uh, he was physically uh, a wreck, even though he was really still in reasonably good shape, but he couldn't sleep at night. He had these nightmares, and the nightmares generally uh, were of the uh, prison guards, and he hated them. He hated Japan. Uh, he had dreams about the bird beating him, and he wanted to kill him. And he would, uh, in his dreams, he would find himself strangling bird, and then he would wake up. Well, one time he woke up, and his hands were around his wife's neck. Uh, he was wrecked financially, and then finally his wife and his one child, with his one child, uh, wanted a divorce. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting story, as told in Devil at His Heels. Uh, Cynthia asked for a divorce, but she still loved him. And he would be able to make a recovery to a certain extent, and then he'd slip back. But while she was still really making up her mind about the divorce, an evangelist came to Los Angeles. And the evangelist was young, and just really starting out in his ministry. And his name was Billy Graham. There was a neighbor that lived across the hall from them in their apartment who was a believer and had been to the uh, one of Billy Graham's uh, meetings, and he invited them to go. Well, of course, uh, Louis was not interested at all. But his wife, Cynthia, was interested, and she went. And she came back the first night and said... I'm, my life has been changed. 
I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And of course, Louis didn't want to hear anything about it. But she invited him. The neighbor invited him. And it wasn't long until he went. And the first night at the Billy Graham crusade, he said he felt as if Billy Graham was talking directly to him. But he resisted it and left. He and Cynthia went home. But the Word of God had made a significant impact on his life. And he knew, he feared going back because he didn't want to succumb to really the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Well, his wife Cynthia was able to convince him to go back. And he went back. And the second night was even even more so than the, than the first night. And as he sat there listening, he knew that he was at a crossroads. And finally, really out of fear, he said it was in all of the events of his life, never, uh, in all of the desperate situations in his life, never had his life flashed in front of his face. But as he sat in the Billy Graham crusade, and was being uh, convicted by God the Holy Spirit, his life did flash in front of his face. All of, the, all of the events, all of the times, everything that he'd ever done. And he realized that he was a sinner. He realized that he was lost. He realized that this is really what he, he needed. But he was resisting it. And so he stood up, grabbed his, his wife's hand and said, we're leaving. And he walked down the row, working his way down the row, finally to the aisle. And when he got to the aisle, instead of turning left to go out the back of the tent, he turned right and went down forward. And he believed. And from that moment, from the moment that he believed, he said his life changed. Uh, he was not familiar with the Bible before, but he became familiar with it. The next morning when he woke up, he realized that was the first good night's sleep he'd had in years. He hadn't had a nightmare. He never went back to the bottle. He lost his anger. And as a matter of fact, he forgave the prison guards. And he particularly forgave Bird. He didn't know what God wanted him to do, but he knew that he certainly couldn't go back to the life that he'd had before. And so he, he went back down to the, uh, to the tent where Billy Graham was, and Cliff Barrow was working with Billy Graham at that time. And they actually had an opportunity for him to speak. And because of who he was, because of his prior life as an Olympic athlete, uh, he was uh, a desirable speaker. And pretty soon he was speaking. Now, he wasn't earning much money. There was always the expense-paid trip and an honorarium. But he was really just barely making enough to keep them both alive. Well, this, of course, developed, and after a while, he became a, a really a highly sought-after speaker. And he later on developed... Um, uh, the Victory Boys Clubs, 
so that he could uh, talk to troubled youths. And um, during this period of time, somewhere around 1950, he was uh, asked by someone if he might like to go back to Japan, go on a mission trip to Japan. And he said, well, I thought about it, but I'm not sure that's really for me. Well, he said, first of all, I don't have enough money. Well, as soon as you raise an objection like that, if God really wants you to go somewhere, the money um, will be found. And pretty soon the money was there. And so he goes back to Japan. And in Japan, this is a picture of him uh, after his salvation. In Japan, he was allowed to speak at the uh, high security uh, prison camp where only prisoner of, of prisoners of war were held. And no one but family were able to uh, have access to that prison camp. But he called to, to SAC headquarters, um, or at least the Far East headquarters, and spoke to, uh, managed to work his way up the chain to General Macar one of General MacArthur's secretaries. And General MacArthur had said, what we need in Japan is about 10 million Bibles and 250,000 missionaries. And so Louis said to the secretary, well, if General MacArthur wants 10 million Bibles and 2,500 uh, 2, missionaries, I'm one and I'm here and I'm ready to go and I would like to go to Sugami Prison. And uh, General MacArthur said, let him go. And so he did. He was able to go. He spoke to all of the prisoners of war. And then when he was finished talking to all the prisoners of war, uh, they, uh, the moderator asked for just those who had been in the prison camp with Louis Zamperini to come down front. And they came down front and he went down and he had a chance to talk to each one of them individually, telling them that he had forgiven them. He had forgiven them and he gave them the gospel. And many of them believed. Uh, but the bird was not there. The bird had managed to escape, uh, and he was not found until much later. And while Louis never had a chance to see him personally, uh, he made it known to him through uh, methods of communication that he had forgiven him. So Louis Zamperini, his, his life is remarkable. Uh, his wife, one of the reasons... I left this bit of information out. One of the reasons that Louis went to the uh, tent meeting with Billy Graham the first night is because when his wife came back and told him that she had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior, she said, I no longer want a divorce. And of course, that was uh, tremendous news to Louis because he loved, he loved Cynthia. And he certainly did not want to lose her or uh, his less than one-year-old daughter. And so Sissy was her name. And so that caused him to at least go to listen to uh, Billy Graham. Um, Cynthia died, um, I believe it was in uh, 2001 of cancer. And Louis Zamberini died this year, July the 2nd. Uh, I think he was 97, 98 years old. I've forgotten exactly how old he was. 
But the movie that is showing right now is unbroken. And I've heard, I've not seen the movie yet, and I've heard various uh, reports of it. Some say that it, uh, it really misses the opportunity to give the critical part of his life. And, of course, that's the last uh, three or four chapters of the books. It just ends with him returning from this prisoner of war camp. Uh, and I think there's a line in the credits that says that he was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are others who say, well, that's the way that he desired it. Um, not certain what the real story is. Apparently, what uh, the movie, for some, have said that they think it's well done, and others say that it may not be. But, um, so it's up to you whether you go see it or not. But one thing I would encourage you to do uh, if you have, if you uh, do not have the book Unbroken, uh, you might want to purchase it and read it. But the book that I really recommend is Devil at My Heels. And the story of his life up to chapter 12 is just unbelievable. But from, but from chapter 12, probably really beginning at 13 at his conversion, through chapter 15, it's, uh, it's encouraging, it's certainly refreshing, and it's, it, he presents the, um, the true story of someone who has come to, um, I guess we always say, the end of his rope, been turned around, and then dedicated his life to the service of his Lord. And there are many um, lessons to be learned from this. And I don't want to take too much longer, but let me just work through a couple of these lessons for you. As you read the books, you can easily see that Louis Zamperini, his life and lessons, first of all, re rebellion, resentment, defiance, and disobedient, disobedience only hurt the persons who allow those feelings to rule their lives. And Louis comes to that conclusion. He comes to that conclusion even before he's a believer. But he certainly comes to that conclusion afterwards. Generally, we're too young and immature to realize really the, the stupidity of these attitudes of resentment and defiance and, of course, disobedience. And often, we do not respond well to parental instruction and correction. But if we don't, life has a tendency to crush us. Societal pressures will crush us. We can learn humility the easy way or the hard way. And hopefully, the enforced humility from our parents or from our teachers or maybe from other instructors, coaches, gives way to genuine humility and our lives change dramatically as we simply stop fighting the authority. And at that point, hopefully we also recognize that all authority, of course, is established by God. So it's really 
God's authority that we are uh, that we are resisting. Secondly, life's experiences are designed to take us to greater levels of excellence as God prepares us for his plan. And Louis understood this. As a matter of fact, Louis understood this, and that's why Romans 8.28 was one of his favorite passages of Scripture. Because he realized that through his life, God was preparing him for the moment that he would believe. He did, in his own words, he said that if it hadn't been for all of his experiences, his defiance, his resistance, and the brutal treatment in prisoner of war camp that subsequently caused his post-traumatic syndrome disorder, disorder syndrome, he said he doesn't think that he had been driven to that point. But he finally came to a point where only the Lord Jesus Christ could solve his problems. And the Lord brought him to that point. Thirdly, our personal goals and achievements are not the same as God's are. God's personal goals and achievement for our lives. And Louis recognized that. He recognized that while he enjoyed uh, the fame and really the fortune that he could earn as a runner prior to the war and even coming back after the war, and he had a lot of great contacts. As you read the book, the names that uh, constantly pop up here and there are remarkable. Um, so he had great opportunities. But he says none of those were ever going to make him really happy. Maybe stimulate him, but not make him happy. And after his conversion, he had more opportunities to speak and give his testimony and uh, help those who were in need than he'd ever had before. And he said the true happiness there was in helping others. And so the Lord's goals for him were much different than his own goals. Fourth, Louis always seemed a step away from disaster and death, but his life was never really in danger. Why? Because God was protecting and sheltering him through his entire life. Whether as a child, uh, later uh, when he was over uh, stealing something from uh, the, uh, the Nazis, uh, when he was in the Air Force, when he was in or the Army Air Corps, when he was uh, in a prison camp, or later on when he was an alcoholic and passing out uh, at times when he was uh, blacking out when he was driving his car. But God was preserving him. Why? Because God knew that there was going to be a time when he, in fact, would believe and he would become a wonderful servant for the Lord. Four or fifth, we must always rely on God's strength, not our own. Louis was well disciplined. He had a lot of courage. He was determined. Uh, he said that he never entered a race that he was not determined to win. Now, he didn't win them all, but he was determined to win them. And so he fought throughout his life in human Uh, we would say that his uh, human strength, strength of the flesh. But after his salvation, he realized how much easier it was to simply rely on the Lord. 
and allow the Lord to take him where he needed to be. Now, he was still resolute and he was still determined. But the Lord was fighting these battles for him. And then finally, the principle of forgiveness is a crucial part of life. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, verse 32. And this is something that is probably one of the more difficult challenges, tests, maybe even roadblocks in our Christian life. It's being able to forgive others. Ephesians 4, it's Ephesians 4, I may have said 5. Ephesians 4.32 And the verse in my New King James Version simply says, And be kind to one another. Uh, it's a, a command. Be compassionate to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. The forgiving here is the word for Grace. Treating in grace. And grace here, the grace way that God treated us was by sending his son to go to the cross and pay for our sins, the sins of the world, but our sins individually and personally. And so when it says forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you, that means forgiving in a way that the Lord Jesus Christ forgave those who even put him on the cross. Because while he's on the cross, he looks at those in front of the cross and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what he for they know not what they've done, what they do. Well, has anyone nailed you to a cross? Well no. Have you had to take the weight of the sins of the world? Well no. And so that's the benchmark. And we fall, of course, much shorter than that, much lower. Um, we're told that our sins are forgiven, our transgressions uh, are forgiven as far as the East is from the West. And, of course, the East and the West never meet. And so they're completely forgiven. And Louis comes to the point in his life where he can forgive the prison guards, the ones that beat the ones that beat him to senselessness, that caused him uh, to bleed and to have welts. He saw them actually kill other inmates, other prisoners of war. And so, learning to forgive others really is the part of our life that releases prisoners. And there's an old saying that says, when you forgive someone, you set a prisoner free. And that prisoner is you. And so this was another wonderful lesson that we learned from Louis Zamperini. And how does this connect to our New Year's? Well, I think that every one of these, every one of these principles, these lessons, can be certainly applied in our new years. Um, it's very often that we find ourselves resentful towards someone, bitter towards someone. 
There's very often we find ourselves pursuing our own selfish desires. Uh, there's very often times when we just don't like the rules and we rebel against them, we resist them. But all of these are lessons that we can apply and I think they're important for us to apply in the new year. Well, let's see. Did I have one last picture of Louis here? Might have. This was how he looked just prior to his, his death, a year or two prior to his death, wearing his old Southern Cal, he, uh, University of Southern Cal. He enjoyed uh, that university, uh, went to school there for a short time, uh, actually did not graduate because he resisted the coach, didn't like the coach's uh, system of training, even though that coach was world famous for his uh, ability to uh, train world-class athletes. Uh, and later on, of course, he realized that uh, he was always swimming upstream. But this is uh, Louis Zamperini. Uh, marvelous story. Um, a tremendous Christian and a great example to all of us. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for this life. We're thankful for what you performed in Louis' life. Uh, the remarkable uh, example that we see through him and we're thankful father that he understands his life and what you were doing and at the end of his life he's so he's able to so clearly reflect and uh, present exhibit his life so that we might uh, see it as an example help us father to um, appreciate what you are doing in our lives because we know that you're working in our lives uh, you have a plan for our lives. You have a purpose for our lives. And sometimes it takes us a long time to get there. But we must remember that we're never too old. We're never too far off the beaten path to serve. Because as long as we're alive, you have a purpose for us. And you will guide us and lead us in that purpose. So as we head for the new year, here in just a few hours, Father, we ask for your blessing upon us as individuals but also us as a nation we're thankful for this nation and the spiritual heritage that we have we're thankful that we started with a nation that was built on biblical principles we pray father that we would not forget that we would not ignore that we would not abuse those biblical principles and we ask father that you would turn us as individual americans and believers uh, turn us around so that we are living strong spiritual lives and then, Father, give us leaders that will lead us in the proper direction as um, many years ago we were. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.